Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, you are so good to us and we praise you with all our hearts. Uh, We ask now for your mercy that you would speak a word of power and grace and wisdom into our hearts uh, that we can live the days of our lives well. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As a favour to a friend, a few years ago, I spoke at a conference uh, that he was organising. The fact that the conference was a schoolies week being held on the Whitsunday Islands, uh, that I and my family uh, all went basically for free uh, for 10 days of relaxing in the sun, had nothing to do with my decision to bail out my friend and engage in this sacrificial act of heroic service. Anyway, the wit, as uh, we who've been there call it, the wit, the wit is a beautiful place full of very, very beautiful people, apart, of course, from these school leavers that turn up every now and again. While we were there, I think I saw what was the most spectacular examples of human youth I have seen before or since. Perfectly sculpted figure, gorgeously tanned skin, magnificently shapely form, and that was the guy. (laughs) This pair were a magnificent duo, superb specimens and to be honest at times it was hard to take your eyes off them as they sort of swanned around the various pools and bars that there are at the wit, which you'd know if you'd been there like I have. (laughs) They were Australian youth at its absolute finest except it turns out that he was a Swiss Ironman competitor taking a well-earned break. Youth, which the Old Testament uh, understood as any age under 30, Okay, so youth is any age under 30 except given our longer lifespans and uh, technical uh, and medical advances I think should probably be revised to at least 40. Um, Not that that has anything to do with a birthday I celebrated earlier in the year. Youth is the age of vigour, of energy, of optimism, of plans and dreams. It's also the time of foolishness and irresponsibility and gullibility and insecurity. And most of us, if not strictly, most of us still qualify as youth. This age group is, of course, the target for advertising. If you can capture the youth market, then you've captured the future. Kyle and Jackie O currently are leading the race. Uh, Not that I understand anything they say either. On 104.1 in the morning and then repeated endlessly throughout the day. Uh, The future leaders of our nation, our schools, our courts and our churches are the young people of today. That is if the baby boomers who currently hold every position of influence ever let go. Young people are the future. It's a cliche, but it's a cliche because it's true. And so there are endless messages about the directions in which young people should be shepherded to make sure that they fulfil their potential and advance the institutions that matter. Well, Kohelet, the teacher our guide for the last three weeks, also has some things to say to young people, things which allow him to sum up what he's discovered in his journey uh, throughout life. All the key themes are here. Absurdity, pleasure, death, God, all brought together as a charter for life for us young ones. Pick it up at Ecclesiastes chapter 11 and verse 7. If you have your Bibles... Get flickin' Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Verse 7 of chapter 11. Light is sweet. 
And it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Even those who live many years should rejoice in them all. Yet let them remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Consistent with all he's written, the teacher says again and again that life is good. Just to be alive and to see the light is sweet. And isn't it interesting? This week, uh, I don't know whether you kind of picked it up on Sunday or Monday, just the sort of lightness of tone that there is around the place with the warmth, the sun, it's been 25, 27, 30 degrees yesterday. Suddenly the, the shirts are out, the short-sleeved shirts, the skirts, it's all, it's, everything's just light and bright, a bit easier and breezier. Light is sweet, says the teacher, it's true. Whatever a wise person may discover about the absurdity of life, the fact remains people desire to live and they should cherish every minute of their lives. Since you see the dark days of darkness will stretch on forever. In other words, the teacher is saying that people should think of death, yes, but so as to appreciate life all the more. To rejoice in every year that you have, for the time is coming when death will take it away. Death is absurd. It's, it's, it's havel. But that just makes life more to be lived. And especially, especially for the young. Verse 9. Rejoice, young man, while you are young, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Follow the inclination of your heart and the desire of your eyes. But know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Banish anxiety from your mind and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. The teacher says that the energy and vitality and possibilities that come with youth make those years especially to be lived to the full. Let your heart cheer you, says the teacher. Be full of energy and vigour and enthusiasm. Go places in your imagination and your desire before you do in your body. That's how we work, isn't it? We think about things, we plan things. And then follow them, says the teacher. Follow the inclinations of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Don't waste the opportunities that your energy and time and frankly relative lack of responsibility affords you. Be as mentally and physically pain-free as you can without emotional anxiety, the anxiety of your mind, or bodily trouble, pain from your body. Just, just cast them off and get into it. Now these are strange words, aren't they? To read in the Bible, uh, they sound more like a contiki ad, frankly. Let me say a couple of things about them. Firstly, uh, from all we know of the teacher, uh, we know that he means these things. Uh, one thing you, you won't be able to do to these words is to say that they constitute some kind of bad advice, which the teacher's you know, quoting with inverted commas around it, just in order to sort of then turn his back on them and refute them. That, that just won't do. This makes sense within the context of Ecclesiastes. Uh, this is the original carpe diem. The original seize the day and suck the marrow out of life. Say the things that you want to say, advises the teacher. Don't be trapped by fear. Try things that are a little beyond your reach. Shoot for something that's just a bit dangerous and risky. Take relational risks. Love and be loved. Pop that question. Read the great books. 
think the great thoughts of those that have come before. See the great sights and be awed by them. Know the rush of adrenaline of having danced to exhaustion, given your all in a sporting contest, written poetry, run for an election in order to seek uh, to influence decisions. The teacher says, go for it while you're young. Don't leave anything in the bag. Don't hold back. You've only got one shot at life. Grab it with gusto. These are very stimulating words for us, I think, because of our very all-or-nothing kind of culture. Because all is so readily on offer, we kind of tend to retreat a bit, I think, into a sort of studied cynicism, an ironic detachment. You know the kind of Seinfeld mode? Never take anything too seriously. Always laugh at everything. Never put yourself out there. The teacher says, no, that's not the way to live your youth. He says, go for it. Get into it. I think our culture is one of fear and heaviness. It's interesting, I've uh, been taking a year 12 Christian studies class uh, at a school nearby and uh, as I talk to them, um, there's not a great deal of ambition there. There's not a great sense of the future. There's just a fairly production line kind of mentality. I do this and then I do this and it's just all pretty set for me. There's very little imagination goes into it. I was talking to a couple of guys today in year 12. What do you want to do? I don't know. Maybe. Surf. The teacher says, no, have a go. Maybe fail. Sure, but fail gloriously. It's worth asking, isn't it? Where are the entrepreneurs? Where are the risk takers? Where are the authors? Where are the women and men of ambition? Now is the time, says the teacher, when you're young. Don't make it true what those old people say. Youth is wasted on the young. Get into it. But not stupidly. What makes this safe spiritual advice are the two qualifications that follow. The first is this, know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Right throughout his book, uh, the frame of reference has always included the divine dimension. Time and again we've seen that God is the one who creates. God is the one who makes things crooked. God is the one who judges. God is the one who is above us in heaven. And here again he says, do what you do, live your life, follow your imagination and your desire, the inclination of your heart, do it in the sight of God. Don't pretend that you're a law to yourself that you can use and abuse others as you walk down this path. No, God is still God and he'll bring every deed into judgment. The teacher has no specifics with which he can spell out that. He's got nothing to say about how and when, what will the consequences of that judgment be and who will do it. Uh, We know more now in Christ, don't we? Uh, We understand more clearly. Mind you, not that the specifics are very clear to us either. You see why you can't read Ecclesiastes as simply teaching about life under the sun apart from God? Remember how we've looked at this along our way? Uh, It's not that the first 11 and a half chapters of Ecclesiastes are life as the non-Christian, meaningless apart from God, but, ooh, whooshka, become a Christian and it all works out. That's not how it is. God is in the picture throughout, crucially in the picture, even in the midst of life which is Havel. 
But crucially, that doesn't mean that the picture makes complete sense to us. On the contrary, and this is the second qualification, the teacher knows that youth and the dawn of life are also vanity, also havel, absurd. That is, this pursuit of pleasure and the possibility of youth done even in the sight of God doesn't somehow rescue life from the absurdity of which the teacher has been speaking all along. We still don't have the big picture. We still don't have the grand explanation. And so there's always that sense of not having given yourself too fully to these things. Your whole being doesn't rest upon them. That's why I think the teacher is so much more profound than the Robin Williams character in Dead Poet Society. Who, who has not seen this movie, Dead Poet Society? You see what I'm saying? Live life a little! Watch the great movies! Well, anyway. It's about a teacher. A teacher, the kind of teacher all teachers want to be. An inspirational figure who stands on desks and leads people in parades. All you education students don't acknowledge the fact that there is no such thing as a teacher like that. They don't exist. There's no year 12 students that are like that either. They couldn't care less. You just keep pretending. He wants... He tries to encourage and open up the horizons of his students to seize the day, to carpe diem, to suck the marrow out of life. And in particular, there's one kid in the movie who sort of goes for this, yes, he's got these very rigid, you know, medical, business-oriented, money-oriented, rich parents. He's at this sort of stuffy, compressive, private school. And he says, no, I'm gonna, I want to break out. I'm going to be an actor. And so he gets into a play. It takes him away from his studies. His parents are all heavy on him. It doesn't work. They're not going to let him do it. They're going to cut him down. And without any reference to God, he'll bring our deeds into judgment. And without any reference to the ultimate absurdity of life, and especially the absurdity of youth, you see, suicide looks like a legitimate option. And the kid... Well, I won't tell you what happens. Our sympathies are with him, right? And our sympathies are with the Robin Williams character. At the end, he stands up on his desk again and all the kids salute him and all that kind of stuff and we're all crying and it's all wonderful. Our sympathies are with him. But they shouldn't be. He's really given bad advice. If the author of Ecclesiastes, if Kohelet had been there, the kid would never do what he did. He would have been better prepared for life. He would have known that God brings every deed into judgment. He would have known that even in the midst of the pursuit of the desires of our eyes and inclinations of our hearts, even in the midst of that it's Havel and therefore to not give himself so utterly to it. He would have been better prepared for life including its disappointments as well as its delights. The teacher says, yes, you go for it. You've got summer holidays coming up, right? It's about eight months of, of nothing much to do. <laughs> now, you, look, here's, here's some options. You can sit around and spend most of your time on the phone and on the computer or watching the bold and the beautiful. I mean, I, I don't even know if that's, that's on, that sort of rubbish still. Uh, you can do that. You can spend a summer holiday doing absolutely stuff all. Right? And just wasting it. Or you can do something useful. Go volunteer somewhere. There's plenty of places that need volunteers. Go, go give your time 
to a community agency, help out old people, seek to do something for the homeless in your area. Find out what it's like to live as someone who's dependent on welfare. Volunteer for your church. Go on an overseas mission trip. Uh, You can't go to China now uh, with the EU team. I think that's closed, but there'll be other teams that you can do. Or support them. Get into a missionary agency and find out what it's like and explore that possibility. Ask and pray that God will give you wisdom to know whether he's sending you into the mission field. Or watch the bold and the beautiful. You see what I mean? It's just, God, the teacher says, go for it. Use it. Do well. Give yourself at least three hours to think through how am I going to make the most and just pour myself into these next three months. Use your youth well. Why does the teacher say this? Why is he so exhortatory? Why does he encourage us in this way? He says, because the one thing that the young don't get is that they're going to die. And as far as the teacher is concerned, the dead know nothing. And so he takes us, us youth, he takes us on a journey into ageing and death. Chapter 12, verse 1. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return with the rain. In the day when the guards of the house tremble and the strong men are bent. The women who grind cease working because they are few. And those who look through the windows see dimly. When the doors on the street are shut and the sound of grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. When one is afraid of heights and terrors are in the road. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because all must go to their eternal home and the mourners will go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken and the pitcher is broken at the fountain and the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the breath returns to God who gave it. This is a, a brilliant Fascinating poem, isn't it? Evocative in its language and powerful, even if we don't get all the details. Notice the structure, what the teacher's saying here. Uh, Enjoy your youth, he says. It's the same point as he was saying previously. Remembering your Creator before, verse 1b, before the days of trouble come and the years draw near when you'll say, I have no pleasure in them. Get into it now before those days come. Get into it now, verse 2, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return with rain in the day the guards of the house tremble. Do this before, verse 6, the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken and the pitcher is broken at the fountain and the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth. Literally, what we have here is a funeral procession. Uh, The the key is in verse 5 where it talks about the mourners going about the streets. The teacher depicts here the march of death in a small uh, ancient town with a central 
kind of straight down the middle of it and everything kind of shuts up shop. Um, all the doors are closed. All the work stops. There's no work going on anymore because everyone's sort of closed up. The windows are down. Everyone's watching. The mourners go about in the streets. The activity of the town stops for this funeral procession. And finally there is the disintegration of the body, the dust returning to the earth and the breath to God who gave it. Figuratively, I think what we have here is a great picture of ageing and death. Uh, Derek Kidner wrote a very helpful little book uh, on Ecclesiastes. It's called A Time to Mourn and A Time to Dance. Uh, Kidner comments this way. There is the chill of winter in the air of verse 2. As the rains persist and the clouds turn daylight into gloom and then night into pitch blackness. It is a scene sombre enough to bring home to us not only the fading of physical and mental powers, but the more desolate, the more general desolations of old age. There are many lights that are able to be withdrawn besides the senses and faculties, as one by one old friends are taken, familiar customs change, and long-held hopes have to be abandoned. All this will come at a stage when there is no longer the resilience of youth or the prospect of recovery to offset it. In one's earlier years and for the greater part of life, troubles and illnesses are chiefly setbacks, not disasters. One expects the sky to clear eventually. That's so true, isn't it? You know, you, you crash and burn in an exam, what do you think? Oh, well, I'll just do it again. That's no big deal. You, you fail in one sort of area of life, you sort of pick up another area, that, that's alright. We'll find a way forward. You, you get a bit sick and what you think is, oh yeah, I just I take the right drugs, I go see the doctor if I need, I go to... I, I get better. That's how life is, isn't it? You overcome setbacks and you get better. That's how life goes. Well, it does when you're young. But Kidna comments, it's hard to adjust to the closing of that long chapter to know that now in the final stretch there will be no improvement. That the clouds will always gather again and that time will no longer heal, but kill. You see how it goes. As death approaches, the guards of the house, I think the hands begin to tremble. Has anyone done what I've suggested? Go to a, a nursing home. You see the way that people's hands tremble. These guards of the house. The strong men are bent, that is the legs become bowed and bent. Uh, the women who grind cease working because they're few. Many teeth are missing. And so chewing is difficult. I know an elderly person who's had most of his back, are they called molars, top and bottom removed. You try chewing a good steak without teeth. It just can't be done. And so one of the real joy... I mean, is there anything much more joyful? <laughs> Juicy, bloody steak. And just getting it down the back passage there. and mwah! That's no more. The, the women who grind cease working because they're few. He doesn't, he's, he's never going to taste a steak again. That's how it goes. And those who look through the windows see dimly. The eyes grow dim and seeing clearly, seeing through the windows of your soul, you see, uh, becomes more and more difficult. The doors on the street are shut and the sound of grinding is low. This may be a reference to the failure of the digestive system. Think about it for a moment. 
The door's on the... Anyway. <laughs> One rises up at the sound of the bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. The faintest sound, even a bird singing, awakens the elderly from their sleep. Have you known They don't sleep much anymore. They just can't get to sleep. They just... They, they sort of... Anything, any little thing wakes them up. But, but paradoxically, their hearing is not as good as formerly. Uh, the daughters of song are brought low. That is, they just can't, they can't hear as well. Everyone's voice seems fainter. One is afraid of heights and terrors are in the road. Uh, the old are fearful of losing their balance. They stand up. Remember we talked about falls for elderly people. Even their height becomes too high and scary. And they're very fearful of venturing outside because there are terrors in the road. It's interesting, in the church where I serve now, there are, when what's new for me, there are these elderly people. You don't hold meetings at night for elderly people. They just don't like going out at night. They're scared. There are lots of you people around. They're not sure what you're going to do to them. I know you won't do anything to them. But they hear lots of stories, bad stories. So they don't like going out at night. You have meetings for them during the day. The almond tree blossoms. Uh, I've not seen an almond tree, but I understand that when the trees blossom, they go all white. Uh, my almond tree is blossoming at the moment. I need a haircut. And, uh, uh, but when you know, there's a day when just cutting your hair one's not going to do the job. I have a few greys, but uh, someday they're going to not be able to be cut out. That's all I've got. The almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper drags himself along. That is the one who formerly had a sort of sprightly gait who hopped and skipped along must now just kind of drag himself along and desire fades, fails. There's even diminished sexual desire in old age. You can barely imagine it, can't you, that that could be the case. Finally, the poem concludes with the disintegration of the body. Verse 6, Before the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken and the pitcher is broken at the fountain and the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the breath returns to God who gave it. Now one picture here is of a beautiful lamp hanging by a silver thread. That's our life, you see. And the thread snaps, and the lamp falls. Bang. And it's just smashed. Or, or a second is a bucket being lowered into the well, uh, the, the, by a wheel into a well, and, and the, the wheel breaks, and the pitcher falls. Our mental faculties and ability in old age to think clearly. The light from the lamp, the water drawn up from the well. Not only externally, but internally, mentally. It just snaps. And the dust returns to the earth as it was. Uh, you may know, remember that I've spoken about a, a man, one of a, the, an elderly gentleman who I've been visiting uh, in a nursing home over this last month. Uh, he died on Tuesday morning. This, this is exactly his situation. Uh, just, what, four months ago, at 92, uh, he was at church at 8 o'clock every morning on Sundays and full of vim and vigour, living independently, uh, still as much in love with his wife as he was when they first got married. But this is what's happened to him the strong men were bent and he didn't want to eat 
the women who grind ceased working and the silver cord snapped and the bowl broke and this afternoon we buried him I'm going straight from here to his funeral and he'll be cremated and the dust will return to earth as it was whose funeral whose ageing is on view here why does the whole town stop and mourn the answer is unmistakable actually what the teacher is presenting to us is our own death and funeral. This is for you. Do not ask for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for you. This is addressed to you. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth before all this happens to you. The teacher invites you to take a look at your death and your funeral, if you like, from the outside, in advance. This is your fate that is so appalling. This is your picture, so your death that is pictured even in kind of cosmic terms. It's so bad, it's so disgraceful that this should be the way that the, the sun and the moon and the stars, they go out. The very heavens stop when you die. Yes, it's Havel, isn't it? It's madness, it's absurd that this should be your fate. And notice how the poem works. It's one thing to say, oh yes, we'll all die and uh, what will I have for lunch? You know, you just sort of part. But the, the poem won't let you do that. It slows you down. It p- forces you to pause and consider and see it. It takes you through your entire body, your hair, your eyes, your mouth, your teeth, your arms, your legs, your bowels, your digestion, everything. It just slows you right down and forces you to face the fact. Yes, this is how it will go for you. And for me. This is how. And the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the breath to God who gave it. And the teacher's purpose for you today, you see, is that knowing this, seeing it in advance from a distance, before you feel it close up in your experience that you will know what to do with your youth, you see. That this is what it's going to be for you. It means that you'll know what to do with your youth. The bold and the beautiful? I don't think so. And finally the words of the teacher close as they began. Vanity of vanities. Havel of Havel, says the teacher. All is Havel. All is absurd. The book ends with an epilogue in verses 9 to 12 and then a postscript in verses 13 to 14. Besides being wise, the teacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs. The teacher sought to find pleasing words and he wrote words of truth plainly. The sayings of the wise are like goads, And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings that are given by one shepherd. Of anything beyond these, my child, beware. Of making many books there is no end and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For that is the whole duty of everyone. 
For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Remember right back at the beginning, a teacher introduced, sorry, an editor introduced the teacher. So now an editor ends what the teacher has said. Besides being wise, the teacher. This is, this is someone else writing now. And he ends this editor by affirming the teacher's project. This is not that everything the teacher has told us is somehow the meaninglessness of life, but now we're going to get the true answer. No, he affirms the teacher's project. He was wise in what he said. He taught. He wrote words of truth plainly. That just makes you think, doesn't it, really? If the teacher had wanted to be sort of slightly obscure, you know, what would he have written? If Ecclesiastes is plain? They're good for us, these words of the teacher, even if they hurt, but even if they're a bit like cattle prods, right? Goads, you know, you know it's like the... And sometimes that's what it's like reading Ecclesiastes, isn't it? It's a poke in the eye. Ah, oh, no, don't make me see that. I don't want to know about that. I don't want to think about it. Surely pleasure is everything and it's all meaningful and life is rosy and it'll be wonderful and if I only try harder, I can work things out and it will all go well. A bit like a nail that's kind of poked into your arm. that sort of wakes you up. The teacher says, no, that's not how it is. That's not how it is. His is a severely limited wisdom. It embraces the absurdity of life and pleasure and wisdom and death. Notice the editor says there's nowhere to go beyond this. Of anything beyond these, my, chair be, my child beware. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. This is not uh, your mantra for your exams, right? I mean, it's true, but this, the point is, uh, there's nowhere to go. It doesn't matter how many books you read. You can read the whole official library if you like. It doesn't matter how much study you do, you will not penetrate the mystery of life and death more deeply than the teacher has done here for you. You can't get any further than where he's taken us, says the editor. And then comes a postscript. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for that is the whole duty of everyone. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now again, uh, we know enough now to know, don't we, that this is not somehow the gospel at the end of the letter. The good news after all the bad this is nothing in verses 13 and 14 here that the teacher hasn't said a dozen times in the body of the book, right in the midst of his teaching about life's absurdity. But what we have here is to hear it crisply and clearly the guts of the matter. We live in an absurd world. We do live in an absurd world. Justice is rarely done, even though God is righteous. Wisdom often works no better than folly, and yet God has made the world according to wisdom. Pleasure is good, it's true, but it's fleeting. It's oh so fleeting. People can talk and talk and with goodwill seek to understand each other and things can simply get worse. People can be well-intentioned. Oh, the world is full of well-intentioned people who just make things harder for others. If only you were a world where good intentions guaranteed good outcomes. But it's not. We live in a world that is absurd. What's more, isn't that not true post-Jesus? In fact, in a sense, the world is made even more absurd post-Jesus. 
given how much we know about the one who really is the Lord in heaven and on earth. In a sense, I think the gospel doesn't rescue us from the absurdity of the world, it tightens the screws. Yes, we know who Jesus is. We've seen what he can do. And yet, show me the kingdom of God now. I mean, it's clear when Jesus went through Galilee, just healing and casting out and raising and just sensational. But doesn't the gospel just, in a sense, make it harder? Tighten the screws, accentuate the absurdity. Even gospel ministry, you know, that some suggest the only thing that's worthwhile, the only thing that's meaningful is gospel ministry. Even gospel ministry is absurd. With utterly faithful missionaries, slaving for decades even, sometimes entirely fruitless, not a single convert, and some completely fruit loop ministers. And I'm telling you, there are some absolute nutters out there. Enormously productive for the kingdom. Hundreds and thousands even led to Christ by them. That is the character of the world we live in. But what matters in the midst of this absurdity is that we receive the good things that God gives us knowing that they come from Him, our Creator. That we live our lives before Him with no grand illusions, no pretense to be the saviours of the world, no enormous game plans to do grand things, just a right reverence and fear of God, a commitment to keep His commandments, knowing that I'll give an answer to Him for all I've done. It's not the big picture, is it? It's not the big picture. But it's enough of one, don't you think? Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you that you tell us the truth about our lives and about our world. Uh, We long for that day that you return. And as we wait and long, we pray that you would grant to us the power and strength of your Holy Spirit. that we could receive from you the gifts you give with joy and thanksgiving. That we could fear, rightly fear, the Lord our God and obey his commandments and put our trust in him. And we ask it in your name. Amen.